I am J.A. Lovelock, a barrister, an author, but most importantly, a crime junkie. Welcome to my podcast, Behind the Yellow Tape. In this episode of Behind the Yellow Tape, I speak with Annie Stalkwa, who has quite an experience often in the criminal justice system and which she is going to share with us today. Welcome to the program, Anis. And first of all, I interviewed you 11 years ago, February 2010. <laughs> How amazing is That's that? Crazy. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, this time has just flown. Now, I do believe you have done quite a bit, just a bit, since we last met. But before we get on to how you've been spending your time in the last 11 years, let's have a recap of how you came to be involved in the criminal justice system. Yeah, well, um, I received an eight-year prison sentence uh, back in 2000. Um, I, I kind of... Um, went through the prison system very quickly um even though i had an ato sentence which meant you know i was was, i wasn't eligible for anything at all um but they kind of moved me very quickly and i eventually ended up in at east sutton park hmp east sutton park which was an open prison far too early in my sentence because i had to sit there watching women go out for the weekend see their children women go out at eight o'clock in the morning come back at eight o'clock in the evening you know going to work and I had to sit there (laughs) I was not happy but I made use of my time um and the time that I made use of I set up the vision project with the assistance of others I set up the vision project um at HMP Eastern Park which I'm proud to say is still running oh very good Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm really proud of that. Because, you know, upon release then, it was the same old story as as us all, um, you know, the doors. Regardless of, of, of the qualifications that I had gained um, as a serving prisoner. Um, and what, and the, what qualifications were those? Um, I, well, I qualified as I, the, the governor sent me to college um, <laughs> um, and the Prisoners Education Trust, which is an amazing organization. Um, um, I completed, oh dear, a grade A diploma in housing and welfare management. Mm. Um, so once I'd had that, you know, I was running the vision project um, solely on my own at first. But as you can imagine, 100 women and me. <laughs> and, and, this, and this was inside the prison, was it? This was inside the prison, mm. yeah. I became the vision coordinator and the line manager was obviously the SO and then the deputy governor. Um, so, yes, you know, do, doing all this work and, and running, actually basically running the resettlement um, for the prison, we then had a team because I couldn't manage anymore on my own. So we had a team and myself, I'm, I stayed with the housing side of things. And then another lady managed the employment and then another lady managed the benefits. So we had a nice little team. Um, but of course, upon release, it's always the same thing, you know, um, which was the scariest day of my life, actually, being released. Um, because I've got two choices here. Do I do I now go back to what I know in, in living in reality? Mm. Or do I continue doing what I've been doing inside a prison in, in a comfort zone, if if one for better words, because that's what it is. It's a comfort zone. Um, well, I went for employment and the doors every time I disclosed. The doors were shut in my face. Um, and I remember um, being a, as a parolee, um, 
the accommodation. I'm, I'm never sure whether I was happy probation didn't do their job then or not. Never sure. Because if they had actually done their job and, and, and assessed the property I was being released back to, which was mine and my husband's, they wouldn't have released me. Um, I arrived back and it wasn't fit for a dog to live in, let alone anything else. Um, I left my husband then and um, I borrowed 500 pounds and I, I got a bed sit in Margate, of all places. Um, well, at least you're by the seaside. Oh, well, yes, that's what I thought. <laughs> It wasn't the best of places. Um, and the only thing, it, I had a roof. I had nothing else apart from the clothes I brought out of prison. So that was my bedding because I was re- released on the 14th of December. Well, of course, all services are beginning to close down. So I couldn't gain assistance. And I couldn't go and ask probation for assistance because I couldn't live in the property which I was supposed to be living in. Because it, it was it was rotten. You see, nobody would even eat in there, let alone live in there. Um, so I was living in a, at an address where effectively I was in breach of my license. So I had to travel from Margate to London, Margate to Surrey, Margate to Surrey all the time um, to get the property, you know, in a fit state for me to move back into. And I had to do that, but all over the Christmas period. I just laid on the floor, covered myself with the clothes that I had. Um, and that was my very first Christmas of being released. And I remember standing on Margate Pier thinking, do you know something? This is not supposed to happen to me um, as a parolee, especially. And if I have my way, it's not going to happen to anybody, anybody else. So that's when I decided to set up Vision Housing, which became and it's still, it's still going now. Um, and it's become, we proved to reduce reoffending rates right across London. Um, and it's something I'm really proud of. Well, tell us some more about how that works. Um, well, Vision Housing was about targeting the private rented sector for suitable, sustainable accommodation. Um, it's breaking down that barrier between that ex-offender tag. You know, um, you can be a vulnerable person. They don't like the words, but landlords don't like that. You know, ex-offender, landlords don't like that. <laughs> so it was about breaking down the barriers between the private sector landlords and um, and offenders, ex-offenders. Um, and, you know, we built up, by the time I left, we'd housed, oh, it was three and a half thousand, nearly 4,000 people by the time I left. Wow. Wow. So, um, and we, uh, with the independent evaluation, it's actually on my LinkedIn page, um, the, out, the outcomes, because it was done by Professor Frost of MMU, um, PA consultant, the senior consultant there, Adrian Gaines. Um, obviously, the police were involved um, and so forth. And Mr. Grayling at the time would only accept it under the binary methodology. I know binary means nothing, but I actually know don't know what it means, if you know what I mean. Um, but we done it. <laughs> um, I actually went to, um, we went to InterServe Justice because I couldn't afford it. Vision Housing couldn't afford that. So I went to InterServe Justice. So I love their ethos. Um, and we teamed up and they paid for it for us. And we were successful. We proved, categorically proved, um, to reduce reoffending rates. But the government still didn't take any notice. It's amazing. <laughs> well, well. Then you can show ways how to reduce reoffending 
They don't take any notice, mm. and yet they mm. cry out for information. Mm. It's it's quite amazing. Mm. Mm. So the title is Vision Housing. So yeah. that means that housing were provided for ex-offenders. Yes, on the day of release. Was there anything else that they got from Vision Housing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's all about we're not a, we weren't a one-stop shop. Um, but it's important that whatever, wherever we house that individual and the majority of them, we remove them from their offending areas. Um, but wherever we house them, um, we followed that, that followed with a referral for support within that community. You cannot, cannot just put people in to accommodation and say, well, okay, I've done my job. You have a roof. No, no, no. Your job starts once They've been housed. And do they get employment? Do they find employment? How, how um, easy was that for them to do? Well, um, you know, I have a couple of fantastic, great successes. And in fact, only yesterday, one sent me um, his, uh, he's just written Jamaican Gangs in New York book, which has been released. Um, oh, I, I think I need to have a word with him as well then. Well, he's amazing, um, absolutely amazing. He's done so much. Um, and it was only a couple of months ago that he sent me a lovely letter um, um, via email. He sent me a lovely word saying, you know, he wouldn't have been where he is now if it hadn't been for me and Vision Housing. And, and you know, I sat there and I, I, was, I was almost in tears because that's what it was about. Because, yes, there are chaotic offenders. Um, but those it was the chaotic offenders that I that I targeted because under the housing law, they're single homeless non-priority. So where do they go? You expect them to leave prison with 40 pounds. They have nowhere to go. They've done a short sentence. They'll go to the council. They'll be deemed single homeless non-priority. So where do you expect them to go next? So they go back to what they know to find a bed, you know, with all good intentions can go out to the window within within 24 hours mm -hmm. because they're back with the people that they would try and try and not to go back to by asking for help elsewhere. But they couldn't get it because they don't fit. So the housing law actually needs to be looked at. It needs to be changed to, to fulfill the, you know, the for this category of people. It's the same thing as I'm doing down in Wales now is run the hub for veterans. It's a single homeless non-priority. And I'm amazed at how many veterans that are homeless when they've been fighting for our country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We'll talk a bit more about the mm -hmm. veterans in Wales. I just want to go back to ask about um, the type of ex-offenders that Vision Housing helped. It, were there in categories? Were there certain types that you weren't able to help? Yes, I mean, we, were, we weren't geared up um, to work with, obviously, serious violent offenders and uh, sex offenders. Um, but saying that, I mean, I took it upon myself to house a sex offender. Um, and that was down to the fact that he hadn't offended for 20 years. Um, and we never had any issues with him whatsoever. We, you know, working with the police um, and the board that governed him, um, you know, he's turned out absolutely amazing. And to my knowledge, I mean, he's still, he's gained employment and he's doing well. But that was my decision 
um, I I made that decision, um, you know, because obviously my board said we don't house. Well, to know something, sometimes you just have to look outside your box um, and look at that a person as an individual and not clasp them all in, in, you know, put them all in one bowl and say they're all the same because they're not. So even though you had a board that you were working with a board, you were able to make those kind of decisions. Oh, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. You know, it's I didn't set up vision housing to be governed by people who didn't have a clue. <laughs> I set up vision housing to be governed by people who knew what they were doing. Hence why majority of 80% of my staff were ex-offenders, all fully quali- all, all fully qualified IAG workers, housing law, um, you know, qualified in housing law, you know, the, so uh, do you know, they became an office manager. One became my operations manager. They're ex-offenders. They done a blood, sorry, they done a good job. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh so, um, I will get back, I will get on to um, the work you're doing now. But I just want to say, and let's talk about what you said is absolutely fantastic. You, you, you did a great job at Vision Housing. So great, in fact, you, you won quite a few awards. Tell us a bit more about that. Yes, we did. Um, <laughs> good God, yes. We won the, i got to remember them all now, um, the Centre for Social Justice Award, which was a great honour, which at that time was Ian Duncan Smith's um, award. Um, and it was an amazing honour to win that award. Um, we won the Re, uh, Redemption Awards. Um, Andy Ludlow, we came second. I was not happy. <laughs> but again, it was a great honour to be yeah. recognised um, in that category. Um, oh, dear. There was quite a few. Yes, um, yeah. Yes, there was this, I won the Citizens Award. I won the, oh, Unseen I was. I won the uns, one of the one hundred women unseen powerful women award. Unseen wow. powerful. Yes, I won unseen powerful woman award. I was one of the one hundred unseen powerful women, oh, and well I done. won that. Yeah, I won that award. Well um, and I said, well, I'm obviously not shouting loud enough. <laughs> if, I'm, <laughs> if I'm unseen, I'm not shouting loud enough. Um, <laughs> yes, I thought there was something about that word unseen. <laughs> Yes, I know there was a few others, but they're gone now. It's on my mind. I can't remember. So how, well, clearly you were extremely successful at Vision Housing. How did you transition to what you're doing now? Tell us a bit more about what you're doing now. Well, um, it was time to leave Vision Housing. Um, You know, I gave it 15 years. Um, I... My goal when I set up Vision Housing out of my back car, out of the back of my car with a mobile phone and 59 pounds, 70 pence a week, from that to where we were was absolutely amazing. Um, But it took its toll on me. Um, And um, it was time to to leave. Um, So I merged Vision Housing um, with actually it was it's quite a funny story we you know when when I was setting up vision housing there were so many that said that it would never work you know this um project it could never work but it was amazing when um I decided to merge with somebody um I went to the Tudor Trust and asked them 
to assist me because it costs something like 15,000 for consultants fees and every, everything else to do the merge. Um, and they, they, they granted me that money um, in order to merge it. But it was amazing when the consultants sent out, sent out, you know, to NACRO, to, um, no, it wasn't crisis, um, to the Forward Trust and to other organizations, big organizations. Um, it was amazing how many came out the woodwork and said, well, we would like it. <laughs> and I thought, well, you ain't, you're not getting it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I chose the old, um, what used to be the wrapped. It was the wrapped project. They changed, they, they, um, changed their name um, to the Forward Trust. It was the best fit for the people that I worked with and, and the people that they worked with. It was the best fit. Um, I thought NACRA would tie it up in red tape and it'd get lost. Um, but the Forward Trust was the, best, was the best choice for it and it's still going now. So do you have an involvement in them, Vision Housing, still, or not at all? No, no I don't. Um, all, I, all I wanted was, just remind, just remember I'm the founder. Yes, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, tell us about the veterans that you're dealing with well, in Wales. Well, and, I never had any. First of, in, first of all, Alice, why yeah. did you move back to Wales? Was it because no, of that or something else? It was, no, it, my sister said to me that if I ever died on English soil, she wouldn't bring me home. Oh. So I thought it was time to get ready. Oh. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I wanted to come home for a long time. You know, I'm, I, you know, I'm in my sixties now, um, and I wanted to come back home to Wales for for a very long time. But obviously, I just couldn't get out of vision. You know, um, but once that happened, I was like, yes, let's go. Um, I came home. I, you know, I retired. Simple as that. I, you know, took early retirement. From from and, what, Anis? What did you well, retire from? From vision. <laughs> I took early retirement and came home. Um, but meeting my school friends and that down here, and they kept raising this issue about homeless veterans. And I'm I'm like, how can there be homeless veterans? Because surely they're, they're catered for. I'm a civvy. I believe that they are catered for. Um, but no, they're not. Oh, no, they're not. Um, a report came out at the same time that I was setting up the Rhonda Hub. Um, a report from Plaid Cymru came out stating there were 60,000 veterans homeless in Wales. Um, so again, again, no money. <laughs> um, I went back to London to the TFN funding network. And I kind of went, oh, God, you're back again. Yes, I'm back. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> so, you you know again it was a pitch for up to five thousand as as usual. I I got that money, so it was four thousand nine hundred and something. I brought it back to Wales, and off we go again. So it's the same model. Um, it's just veterans because I'm quite shocked um, at how many veterans are on our streets and are in our prisons. Park Prison has a designated wing for veterans. That's outrageous. It's a good thing, but it's outrageous that they would, you know, the prisons would feel a need now for a veterans wing. Just thinking about your experience in the criminal justice system, how was your experience 
And how could it have been made better? And thinking of ways to make it better moving forward. Well, for me, um, I'm trying to think from the time I went in. Um, for me, I just, you know, you know, I was a, a substance misuser when I went in. Um, for me, and this, and you know, and I've said it before, um, prison actually saved my life. Um, if I hadn't gone to prison when I did, there's no guarantee I'd be here now. Um, so, but it was, you know, when I was sentenced, I remember ringing a friend and shouting at him and saying, "Those, they gave me eight years. How dare they give me eight years?" Um, and he said to me, "Anise, do me a favor. Stop shouting and read the rule book." And I'm screamed at it. Where do you think I have time to read the rule book? I haven't got no time to read. Well, of course, I just got eight years. I got plenty of time. <laughs> um, and I did. And I, it was important because you've got a choice um, in prison um, to do it the easy way or to do it the hard way. And I believe that I chose the hard way. And that was to um, progress through it very quickly. And each prison that I was in, I had um, a job um, working with people. Um, you know, we work in what used to be the Cranston project. Um, or, you know, going to send. Um, we set up the peer project for crack cocaine users because they had peer mentors for uh, rat. But rat is different to crackane. Um, crack cocaine, rather. So. Um, so we set up that, and I believe that that is still running. So I had a little team, there was two of us, um, working with them because, you know, the drug workers go home at five o'clock. Somebody could be behind their doors. They're not rattling because they're not on heroin, but they have issues because they've been, they're used to crack cocaine. It's a different drug. Um, so that's when we set up, you know, that project at Send, and then, of course, moved me again. Every time I set up something, they moved me. Um, so you know, I could have gone around all the prisons, I think. Yeah, was, so was that a good thing or a bad thing? Um, in, in some ways, a good thing. Um, well, a good thing um, for the prisons because of my progression. Um, but as I said, you know, going to an open open prison um, so early, um, and there, in those days, obviously, it was fled dates. And my fled date was long, long, long way off. Um, so I had to sit there and watch everybody go out. <laughs> Does happy. it? Does it mean, um, did it mean that each time you moved to a different prison, you were getting closer and closer to being released? Yes. Um, yes, because obviously, you know, Holloway, where I spent eight months, um, eight months in Holloway, um, I was working with the, on the, the detox and the post-detox wings there. Um, and I was enjoying that work, you know, working with the drug team, with the Cranston Project. Um, but then, you know, they wanted to ship me out. And I, um, I asked, I asked, you know, I asked a member of staff, you know, is there any way we can stop this? Because I don't want to go nowhere. Um, well, we managed to stop my first ship out, but then they had me on the next one and we couldn't stop the second one. So going to send, I was like, oh, okay, what am I going to do here? But you know, I identified this issue with crack cocaine users and a project was opened. You know, we'd have a room in the evening where the, the women could come and have a 
you know, a tea or a coffee and a biscuit and everybody comes with chocolate biscuits, you know. Um, you've got a room with chocolate biscuits, you'll get every prisoner in there. <laughs> um, so, you know, but it, it was about promoting the drug services throughout the prison as well. So I was very proactive, but that was the only thing that got me through because I had a long time, you know. So um, I'm just thinking, whilst I'm here, I have to use the system to benefit myself and not let the system drown me. Um, and, and that's the choice that I made. Um, it wasn't easy, but they weren't going to drown me and lose me in the system. Yeah, that, that sounded um, like that was a great idea. Yeah, that was a great idea. For myself, yeah. yes. Mm. For myself, because I knew I wanted more. I no longer wanted the existence that I had. I wanted Anise back. Um, and I, I found her back. So, yeah, and she's still back. She's still noisy. She's still... <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, you know, um, yeah, I still say what I have to say when I have to say it, and I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, Anis, that's a really good note to end on, actually. Brilliant. I think it's a really good note to end on. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for taking the time to speak to us and share with us your amazing experiences. And um, we'll probably talk again. Absolutely. It's been a joy to, to see you again. And see you again. <laughs> and we'll, we'll, see each, we'll see each other soon in person. Thanks for listening. Join us on our next episode for more fascinating and interesting matters that go on behind the yellow tape. Till then, you can keep in touch by emailing info at btytpodcast.com. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.